you know, we wanted to be the first one that came to mind. So if we're the ones that helped them out in a tough time, we'll probably be a little bit higher on their list of priorities when they get that check. And that seemed to work. We had an enormous response of promises to pay and a, a lot of people followed through with it. And we were very pleased with that outcome. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on all my deals. If you're thinking about investing passively in real estate and you want to learn how to evaluate a deal, then I created a free guide for you that can walk you through the top five critical deal components that any passive investor must examine. And you can find it on my website, ellieperlman.com. All right. So we're done with this. Let's get the show started. My guest today is Brian Burke. Brian is the president and CEO of Praxis Capital INC. So Praxis Capital is a vertically integrated real estate private equity investment firm. And Brian's 30 years career has acquired him over half a billion of dollars worth of real estate and include over 3,000 multifamily units and more than 700 single-family homes. So Brian is the author of The Hands-Off Investor, an insider's guide to investing in passive real estate syndications, and he's a frequent public speaker at real estate conferences and events nationwide. Welcome to the show, Brian. I'm really, really happy to have you here today. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So you're very experienced, you know, syndicator, one of the most experienced ones out there. You've been through, you know, multiple cycles. Can you tell me a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate? I got started the small way. You know, my first real estate investment was a small rental house that I bought with no money down because I didn't have any money of my own. So I was forced to. I guess I didn't know any better. I didn't know that it was hard to get people to carry back your down payment. I just thought that's what everybody did. So I asked and somebody said yes. <laughs> so that was my first introduction to real estate investing. I was 20 years old and I never looked back. I've been doing it ever since. That first rental, I started flipping homes after that. And I've probably done about 600 single family home flips and bought about 120 rental houses at the bottom of the market in 2011 after the collapse, which was a great trade. And But really our business primarily for the last 10 years is a, and a business I've been in for about 20 now is multifamily and more specifically large multifamily syndications. That's wonderful. And I think it's a good segue to start talking about assets. So you've kind of done it all. You've done subdivided lands, you built homes, self-storage, multifamily. Can you talk to me a little bit about how those different asset classes are performing during COVID? 
Yeah, you know, house flipping was a great business to be in when the foreclosure debacle was at its peak in like 2008 through 2011 or 2012. Since then, it's been almost a, a non-existent business. It's, there's been a little bit of volume out there, but it's been challenging to find, you know, good houses to fix up and resell. It's not as easy as they show it on TV for sure. Mm. So, you know, that business, while we still do it, it's a very small portion of our overall business velocity. Single family home construction is actually going pretty well. It's a business I was out of for about 15 or 20 years, got back into it about a year ago. We had a big wildfire. I'm located in Northern California, so north of San Francisco. And we had a big wildfire that ripped through that city and burned down about 5,300 houses. So we started, we partnered up with one of the largest home builders in our area and to start building homes on burned out fire lots. And that's actually going really well. We've had a good string of sales here lately. Even amongst COVID, we've found, you know, buyer traffic has been strong. We just put a million and a half dollar house in contract on an all cash two week close sale for over the asking price. So, you know, the home, the housing market has actually held up remarkably well. And I think part of the reason is as well, work from home stuff that's becoming popular. We've got, you know, a about 50 miles between us and Silicon Valley. And a lot of those tech employees are now realizing just if I can work remotely, I could just move 50 miles up the road by, you know, sell my $2 million, 800 square foot house and buy a 3,500 square foot house for half the price. And they're starting to do that. And so that's held up our housing market pretty well. I, I'm afraid for what it might do to the housing market in the Silicon Valley and in the peninsula and core markets where some of those people might be moving out of those areas. It's going to get really interesting on the single family side and places like that. Self-storage is a business I've been out of now for about four years. I sold my, my only self-storage facility I ever had. I built one and owned it for about a decade. I can't say how that business is going to do, but I know that in the last recession, it was painful. So it'll be interesting to see if this one's any different than the last one. On the multifamily side, it's been interesting. I Unexpectedly, our rent collections have held steady. In fact, we've had record high collections at some of our assets. But people always ask me when the other shoe is going to drop. And my response has been pretty consistently in saying that the first shoe has not yet dropped. Oh. So eventually a shoe is going to drop and then perhaps a second one after that. But so far, no shoe has dropped yet. But put your seatbelt on because I have a feeling it's not too far away. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, you have the stimulus checks, you have unemployment, you have the PPP that are allowing some small businesses to keep paying, you know, their employees. And so it seems like there are some things in place that maybe artificially are making sure that things are not going to collapse. And it's a wishful thinking, but the first few might not drop, maybe drop halfway and then go back up. But you're right, the first shoe at some point will, will drop. It's just a matter of time. It's happening. You know, I've, we'll see it once in a while. I went down to Cold Stone the other day to get an ice cream with my wife. And next door to the Cold Stone is a Five Guys. And normally at the time we were there, that Five Guys would be packed full of people. But there was one guy in there and it was a Grubhub delivery guy. And he's the only one in there picking up a couple of orders. And, you know, it, it's nice that businesses are starting to be able to reopen. But the fact is, is that, they cannot survive at 10% capacity, you know, and that's yeah. kind of the traffic they're getting. Airplanes are empty, flights are down, 
hotels are, are struggling to stimulate occupancy. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on kind of subsurface that people haven't given full credit for yet. And ultimately, that's going to have an impact regionally, of course, but it's going to have a, an impact on people's ability to either pay rent or move up to a nicer place or accept a rent increase or whatever the case may be. This isn't going to look like 2005, 2006 when the market fell and real estate dropped by 40 to 50%. I don't think we're going to see that, but I do think we're going to see some amount of damage that we have not yet seen that may translate not necessarily into just simply across the board lower pricing, but certainly into some amount of lower pricing and some amount of difficulty and challenge in taking a property and doing a value add, for example. And uh, mm -hmm. I think we'll probably end up talking about, you know, how you do a value adding yeah. differently. But, you know, right now I would sure wouldn't do it the way that we used to. Yeah, and that's exactly the part where I was about to ask you, hey, let's talk about strategy of repositioning multifamily during COVID. So Brian, what was your repositioning strategy prior to COVID? And what is it now? Do you even have a repositioning strategy today? Yeah, we do. And we did. So our strategy before was we would acquire and immediately start renovating interiors. Well, we'd start with the exterior, make the exterior look nice, and we immediately start renovating interiors. The objective would be to pull the rents up to the comps. And so, you know, when we would buy, we would look at area comparables that have already renovated, look at the pricing they were getting, compare it to what the subject property was getting. And our objective would be to, to match those levels, to do a similar renovation and match those levels. That was our strategy as late as January. That's now changed in a way. It's interesting. On the properties we already own, some of them we stopped renovating and others we continued to renovate and we're continuing to get our projected post-renovation rental rates, even though you know, the world has essentially changed. And, and on others, we were seeing pushback on rates, so we stopped renovating and just started renting them out as is at a lower rate. So that's, it's been a little bit mixed on what's already in our portfolio. What's changed most dramatically, though, is what we're looking at to acquire. And that's where things are much, much different, where, you know, we now look at it as if we're going to buy it and do nothing. All we're going to do is just basically put heads in beds, maintain the status quo. We're trying to keep rental rates where they are, 0% rent increases for the next two years, increased bad debt, increased vacancy, increased concessions for the next two years with no renovation. And then after two years goes by, we do a, a small cash out refinance, use that cash to effectuate our renovation program two years down the line. At that point, we would look to raise rents to renovated comps and then sell after that. So we're kind of just basically delaying the, the renovation cycle of the value added investment. My thesis on this is that for a while, while unemployment is high, people are going to prioritize affordability over amenities. And that's going to mean keeping the rents low, 0% rent increases, flat renewals, all those things just to preserve and maintain occupancy and, you know, swing for the fence, you know, after, you know, you have a little bit more certainty that your ball isn't going to get caught somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting 
you know, when it comes to the, the new strategy that you're discussing, the strategy for purchasing. So for two years, you basically look at it as a buy and hold as kind of a turnkey, but with worse financials because vacancy and bad debt are going to increase. And then you're going to implement the value add and refinance the property at that point. How does that shift? How does it affect the returns? Because if you just take a property without any value add, without repositioning, and you run the numbers, if you just hold on to it, most likely you're making very little cash flow, if any. So how is your shift in strategy? How is that affecting the, the returns, especially for you know, investors? Yeah, the performance is interesting, and you're going to be surprised by my answer. In terms of internal rate of return, it doesn't really affect it much at all. And the reason that there's very little effect on internal rate of return is because the only way that we can buy the property under the new underwriting guidelines is to pay a lower price than we would have paid prior to COVID under the old underwriting. So before, we might have been underwriting to higher occupancy, less concessions, less bad debt, 3 to 5% rent growth, depending upon the market for the first couple of years, and then maybe 2 or 3% thereafter. You know, that was a growing income stream that we were underwriting to, and we could pay a premium for that growing income stream. Now we're looking at a flat income stream, or maybe even arguably a slightly declining income stream, but let's just assume for a minute the income stream is relatively flat. We can't pay the premium for that income stream. Now we have to pay, you know, what true value of that income really is. So, so from an IRR standpoint, we're about the same because we're, we'd have to pay a lower price. Now, what's most interesting, though, is in a normal value add, because we're paying a premium for the way we're going to grow the income, generally speaking, in the early years of a value add business model, you have very little cash on cash return in the early years. You might have a 0% cash on cash return for the first year, followed by 2 or 3 or 4%, you know, then 5, then 6, and then eventually you get to 7 or 8. You know, maybe you found one that didn't need as much work or you didn't have to pay as high a premium and you got a 4% year one cash on cash. Well, now because we're not looking at these as, a, as an immediate value add and we're paying a lower price, the surprising result is, is that year one cash on cash has actually gone up because we're paying less for the same income stream than we would have previously. Now, the cash flow isn't going to grow as much in the future years, but it's more in the early years. So instead of, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, it's now, you know, six and a half, seven, eight. So that's been the major difference. So quite surprisingly, they perform better than you would expect. But the problem is, is because you have to pay a lower price, you have to find a seller willing to part with it for a lower price. Mm -hmm. And hence, that's where we're locked in this bid-ask spread where essentially no transaction velocity is taking place at all because sellers are still thinking, well, geez, I'm collecting as much as I did pre-COVID. My value hasn't dropped. But it has because lenders are not making the same quotes that they have before. So if you're looking at a deal, yes, the, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, part of it is yes, collections are strong, but future rent growth is not really there or very limited. And what, you know, any deal you could have gotten 70, 75, maybe even 80% LTV loan to value prior to COVID. Now we're looking at 55 to 65 and that changes your return. So it's not only how much you're collecting now, it's also how much you know, what you can collect tomorrow and how much you can push rents and what the debt terms are going to be. And not that part, and I'm sure they understand it, but it's so hard to let go and justify in your head of 5, 10, 
you know, price cut, if you're performing just well, it's just you haven't changed, but the world around you has, and you have to take that in consideration if you're, you know, thinking to sell a property. So you're right, we're kind of, there's still a gap between buyers and sellers at this point. Yeah, and that's why nothing's really happening. And, you know, to layer on top of your debt scenario there, one other thing that, to think about is that the agency lenders are now requiring mandatory cash reserves to be put up in a lender-controlled account, which means as a syndication sponsor, you're raising more money than you otherwise would have. In addition to the down payment and everything else being larger, you're also raising money to just sit in a bank account and do nothing. So you've got added costs on the front end, you've got less rent growth on the back end, all those things just translate into a concept that many people misunderstand. And it's called cap rate decompression. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the end result. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well said. Well, Brian, I want to talk a little bit about rent collections and, and kind of the process that's the, the process part of our interview. And we chatted right before I hit the record button. And you also mentioned earlier that rents have been strong. There have been, you know, you've been doing pretty good on, you know, rent collections. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that process is different today than it was pre-COVID? And why do you think that rent collection is actually strong in addition to, you know, ev everything we've discussed so far? Yeah, well, I'll answer your question in reverse. So the last part of your question about why they've been so strong is likely the result of government stimulus and money being injected into the system. And, and so here in our portfolio, our highest rent is probably 1500 bucks. And the resident of a $1,500 a month apartment is probably earning on average somewhere between $25,000 and $35,000 a year is probably the approximate income range of our entire resident profile of our 3,000 you know, residents that are 3,000 units that we have in our portfolio. When you make that much money at work with $600 a week unemployment bonus benefit in addition to regular unemployment, the chances are quite high that in that income bracket, you're earning more money on unemployment than when you were working. And especially if you couple that with a $1,200 per person stimulus check from the government and tax refunds that came, you know, starting a, sometime in probably March or April and people were getting tax refunds. So with all of that money coming into the system, it's really not that big of a surprise that we've been able to have strong rent collections. Now, the first part of your question was kind of about the process of it. And, you know, we took a little bit of a, a different tact on how we were going to get uh, strong collections. First of all, we knew that people were going to have the ability to pay because of the unemployment and everything else. What we also figured was that people were going to have cash flow difficulties, not income difficulties, but cash flow difficulties because they lost their job. The lines at the unemployment office are around the block. The phone lines are jammed. The websites are crashing. So it's just going to take time for them to get that money. The money's coming but it's gonna take time for them to get that money. Now, psychologically, when they receive that money, they have a choice to make of how they're gonna spend it. And do they go buy a new big screen TV or you know, do they pay their rent? And so we had to play a little bit of a psychology game and so what we did was, you know, while some landlords were saying, hey, if you pay your rent on time, we'll give you a $50 discount or something like that. We took the opposite approach and instead said, if you lost your job as a result of the COVID and you come in and you tell us and we work out a payment plan 
plan so that once you receive your benefits, you'll catch up on your rent. We'll give you a $50 gift card to the grocery store so you can go get some food during this challenging time. And man, people were so appreciative and receptive of that gesture. And for us, it was part of it was like, hey, we're being human. We're trying to help people. They're in a tight spot. And uh, we get it. We want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. On the other hand, it's also that we know that when they get that stimulus money, they make that choice as to which bill gets paid. And, you know, we wanted to be the first one that came to mind. So if we're the ones that helped them out in a tough time, we'll probably be a little bit higher on their list of priorities when they get that check. And that seemed to work. We had an enormous response of promises to pay and uh, a lot of people followed through with it. And we were very pleased with that outcome. So I have a little confession to make. When we were online together, that was about two months ago at a different panel, then you mentioned you basically shared that strategy of giving out, you know, gift cards for those who lost their jobs. And I, I heard you and I said, you know what? I think Brian is onto something. And I actually implemented it on our properties. We basically send a bunch of you know, Walmart gift cards to the PN, so the property managers, and we said, use discretion. Those who have been you know, good tenants have been paying on time, but now they have some issues. You know, you have, we actually told them to give the, you know, use that to help our tenants, and our rent collection has been phenomenal from you know, between 95 and 99.6%. And I, I think you're absolutely right. It's just showing, you know, we're human, we're here to help. And it's, it's not your problem. It's not my problem. It's our problem. It just worked. It worked great. And it felt for us, you know, it wasn't a huge amount of money. And it just felt good to just be there. And, and look, it's beyond tenant and landlord. It's, you know, we can get hurt if you know, our bottom line is going to get hurt if you're not going to pay on time. And, you know, obviously, you're in a bad situation. So let's find a way to work it out and just allocate in a small amount to just help in that way. So I got to give it to you. This is, you know, this is kudos to you for the idea. I implemented it in my business and it's been working really, really well. I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm glad it worked as well for you as it did for us. And uh, it really was a home run program. And, you know, I think that the media and, and perhaps even, you know, some tenants groups and stuff always want to place residents and owners on opposite teams. But at the end of the day, we really are on the same team because if the residents don't pay or can't pay, then that impacts the owner's ability to pay their obligations, which is what allows that property to, to operate to begin with. So in order to provide housing, you know, it costs owners money to provide housing the same as it costs residents money to consume housing. And if, if there's a break in the chain, the whole system fails. And, you know, by working together collaboratively, we were able to keep the chain together and, and it worked for us. I'm really glad to hear that it worked for you too. That's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for that. So, you know, kind of before we move to the lightning round questions, I want to hear your thoughts about where do you think we're going with COVID? Where, how do you think this is all going to play out? Well, I think that we're going to see some increased difficulty over the course of the next, you know, six to 12 months 
primarily for the reasons I, I mentioned earlier about empty airplanes, empty hotels, empty concert venues, canceled festivals, conventions and conferences with almost no one there. And, you know, you just think about all the, you know, ticket takers and ushers and caterers and, you know, all the stuff that's involved with all the in-person events that take place throughout the country all year long, that's going to have some impact on the housing industry, on people's livelihoods. And I I think that we're going to have some challenges to work through in the near term. I also think that the, uh, the country has made, and the researchers especially, have made enormous progress on the vaccine front and on therapeutics and, you know, kind of getting a handle on our capacity, hospital capacity and that sort of thing. I believe that we'll probably have a vaccine sooner than most people think. And we'll start to be able to see some healing and recovery, which means basically getting back to normal day-to-day life. And, but, you know, there's, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but there's going to be a lot of business failures that will take place in between here and there. You know, that'll, that'll breed opportunity for others that, you know, they'll be able to rise from the ashes you know, in five years from now, we'll all look back on this and we'll talk about it the same way we now talk about the great financial collapse, about how, boy, it was tough and this happened and that happened, but things are great now and we'll be back to paying you know, 4% cap rates for class A multifamily property again or some other kind of craziness. You know, I think this too shall pass. Absolutely. I cannot wait for it to pass and, and talk about it in, in past tense and not in present tense. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for your time. We have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Hit me up. All right. So, Brian, what's your favorite hobby? Flying airplanes. Ooh, flying airplanes. What do you fly? I fly a Cirrus SR-22. It's a four-seat turbocharged propeller plane. Wow. Wow. That reminds me this weekend I was driving and I saw someone with a license plate. I fly a chopper it was kind of set up as, as a license plate so we actually stopped at the light and my husband had a conversation with this guy just asking about it. I, i think it's extremely cool i didn't get my helicopter license but i took some helicopter lessons i almost soloed and then i ran out of time and got busy and maybe one of these years <laughs> i'll get back out there all right well what's the one thing that people don't know about you With as many podcasts as I've been on and everything else, I don't think there's any secrets anymore. <laughs> you know what a lot of people don't know is that I, I got to do this. What a lot of people don't know is that I recently wrote a book. My wife's been telling me for years and years and years I needed to write a book. It literally just came out about a, I don't know, a month or two ago, which is really cool, The Hands-Off Investor. So a lot of people don't know that yet. And I'm surprised word hasn't quite gotten out there yet, but it's starting to. All right. And we're going to put a, a link in the show notes. You know, people who are interested in reading the book can actually access it. All right. Great. So, uh, Brian, what's your number one advice to investors who want to scale their business or their portfolio, especially in today's market? Well, this is the market to do it in. This is the time to prepare and be ready and wait for the right opportunity. So, you know, you've got to put yourself out there. You have to take affirmative action and, and make steps toward your goal. And, you know, take the time right now. There's very little transaction velocity happening, happening out there. So take the time now to build up your systems, your processes, your partners, your capital, your investors, all of those things so that you're ready to scale. When the, when the economy collapsed in 08, it was really painful. And I remember thinking, I have two choices. 
I can shrink my way out of this, which means you file bankruptcy, you give up and you go back to, you know, for me, go back to working in law enforcement, which is where I came from. Or do you grow your way out of, the, out of it where you just expand and expand and expand? I chose option B. It's definitely the better choice, but it's not the easy choice. So, you know, use this as a tool to help you grow. Awesome. That's a great advice. Well, Brian, thank you so much for spending the last 30 minutes with me. If somebody wants to reach out to you, chat with you about your investments or, you know, kind of hear your thoughts about anything, how can someone, you know, connect with you? Best place is through our website, which is praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X cap.com you can find us on instagram at praxcap or my my own instagram at investor brian burke or on biggerpockets.com i spend a lot of time there as well all right perfect yeah if you haven't gone to bigger pockets i highly recommend you do so well thank you again brian that was a very fun conversation and again thank you so much This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.